0: Hello, I'm Lily Hyam,
1: and I'm Gordon Johnston. Welcome to the Last Question podcast, brought to you by Data Lab Scotland's Innovation Centre for Data and AI, hosted by the University of Edinburgh. Uh, and as always, if you're enjoying the Last Question, please do leave us a review and a rating on whatever platform you happen to be listening to the podcast on. It helps shuffle us up all the algorithms, and it really does mean a lot to us. We've also seen a big spike in listeners recently, so hello to the new people out there. Hello. Hello. That's staying in because that's what you can expect.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Today we're going to be chatting to Olga Tokariuk, a journalist, disinformation researcher and non-resident fellow of the Centre for European Policy Analysis. Olga's writing has been featured in Time, The Washington Post, The Daily Beast, NPR, BBC and many more places.
1: We're also very excited that Olga is going to be speaking at Data Summit 2023, which we're really, really looking forward to. She's going to be talking about disinformation and elaborating on some of the things we talk about today. Uh, towards the end of the episode, there's going to be a code for 25% off your tickets to this year's Data Summit event in Edinburgh. So please do keep an ear out for that after the interview.
0: So to kick things off, let's start with a definition. Quite often you will see the terms disinformation and misinformation used interchangeably, but there is a very important distinction to be made between them. Disinformation is the deliberate spreading of false information with the intent to deceive. Misinformation is the spreading of false information unintentionally.
1: Yeah, but as we'll be discussing today with Olga, in practice it's not always so clear-cut there's a huge amount of gray area between misinformation, disinformation, propaganda, spin, weaponized ignorance. It's almost impossible to tell where one ends and the next begins.
0: Mm, and they can influence each other as well. So like Absolutely. I might accidentally spread misinformation because I believe something to be true based on some disinformation that seemed convincing Mm -hmm. that someone said to me and on the other end of that it could be that i just make a mistake and i have misunderstood something and i say something and then someone takes what i've said and uses that as disinformation so you can have a chain where you have disinformation and misinformation alternating and feeding off each other Mm -hmm. um disinformation in one form or another has been around for really really long time but in terms of how we talk about it today, it has its origins around 100 years ago in the Russian State Political Directorate, which is a precursor to the KGB. They would use black propaganda, which is a political material designed to look like it comes from a particular group in order to discredit that group.
1: Yeah, so it would be, you know, if you write something pretending to be somebody else uh, and you're being like wildly racist in it, that would be black propaganda. So... Uh, Something that comes up a lot in our recent podcast is the idea of truth and how in any capacity, it's really becoming more and more difficult to discern what that actually means. So I found this quote from Patrick Warren, who is the head of Clemson's Forensic Media Hub, uh, to be really, really interesting. He said, uh, quote, you don't actually have to convince someone that it's true. It's sufficient to make people uncertain as to what they should trust. And I think that really, really gets to the heart of the problem with disinformation.
0: Yeah, it's not just about getting a particular point across surreptitiously, it's about undermining all sources of information.
1: So today we're going to be talking to Olga about all of this and more. Um, We're really, really excited for this interview. It's going to be a lot of fun. So, um, thanks so much for joining us, Olga. You've had a long and distinguished career in journalism and disinformation research. Can you tell us a little bit about how you've seen the nature of the news cycle and reporting and disinformation in particular change since you first started your career?
2: Well, I'm not sure about distinguished, but yeah, maybe a long career, at least in journalism, since mid-2000s. I worked mostly on TV, and uh, when I just started working, of course, well, there was already internet, but social media were not yet a thing, and that was a very different information environment, as you can imagine. So, People mostly took their news and they mostly got to know the news from the mainstream media. So they still read newspapers. They still watch TV. And that of course is very different now when for many people, the major source of news are social media. Uh, Then the news cycle of course was much slower. So now something that was relevant in the morning might be obsolete by the evening and then the next day, it's a completely not a thing. It was very different in in mid-2000s. The media organizations, I would say, in mid two thousands, they relied more heavily on presence of their correspondents on the ground, as those were very often people who knew most, who knew more than the editor sitting in the office would, which is not the case now. So very often now, it's the opposite. The opposite is the case: a person who is on the ground will be contacted by an editor and told the latest news and told, you know, all the context, and then the editor will ask a person on the ground, the reporter on the ground to go and check and verify and, you know, cover, cover the story based on the information they already have. There is still of course, value to reporting from the ground to being on the ground, because it's the most immediate way to establish a connection with, with people on the ground and see, you know, that the situation, um, with, a journalists own eyes, but I would say that, um. The information space is so saturated now that there is no reliance, or the reliance on the reporters on the ground is not as heavy as is as it used to be.
1: It's funny that the kind of citizen journalism thing like felt quite important for a little while, especially in the, the kind of late twenty uh, tens and everything. And then there were so many revolutions happening around the world that are being, uh, you know, kind of. Propagated and pushed forward by like encrypted messaging and whatnot, it felt like we were on the cusp of this like big revolution in the way that news was going to be um, shared around the world. But then, well, then AI popped up and generative AI popped up, and now it's all just kind of gone to hell again. You know, it's very difficult to know what's real and what isn't. But we're going to get onto that in another mm. part of the podcast.
0: I think, um, citizen, uh, did you call it citizen, uh, journalism. journalism, um, like citizen science can be good in some areas that are less, um, people have less reason to twist the truth. So like citizen science, for example, when people are like, uh, noting down what birds species or in different areas you're probably not going to get people making up what kind of birds they see in different areas as often and that in that way it's really good because you're just getting loads and loads of information from people in lots of different areas that you probably can trust quite well people just don't make mistakes um, but when it comes to something that people have an agenda about or something they really want to be true when emotions come into play with fear then it mm-hmm. changes the reliability of that data. And even if they mean to be truthful, it, they have things that will like affect their perceptions a lot more than mm-hmm. just looking for a robin in your back garden.
2: <laughs> well, and, and speaking of citizen journalism, I remember that, uh, you know, almost euphoric at times when social media just appeared and that coincided uh, almost in time with the Arab Spring revolutions. And you remember that euphoria about how it was possible, thanks to social media, for people to mobilize, to connect, to unite, to uh, uh, go down to protest. And that was stretched in time. And that also happened in Ukraine with the Revolution of Dignity in 2013 that started basically uh, out of a Facebook post of one of Ukrainian journalists, Mustafa Nayem. Uh, who, in reaction to the decision of the then president uh, Yanukovych, a pro-Russian president, to uh, not to sign a, a political association agreement with the European Union, uh, so there was a reaction from this journalist who, who wrote a post on his Facebook. He 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 wrote, so let's gather this place in downtown Kyiv, Maidan uh, independent square, take your tea and see you there. And and that's how it started. I remember seeing that post and I remember reacting to it. I remember going to that square. So, and that was the time when the social media were still perceived as something, you know, inherently good as a way to connect people, to make them mobilize, to make social change possible, especially in authoritarian regimes. It is still the case, partially. Uh, citizen journalism and social media in some most restrictive environments in the world, like Myanmar, for example, or occupied Crimea, Russian occupied Crimea in Ukraine, they are still a thing. Well, of course, social media are much more controlled by the governments now. So the governments in the authoritarian countries, they learned to monitor, to detect, to, you know, censor social media. We're not even touching the subject of the great Chinese firewall here, but uh, but, but the fact that, I think that they also at some point in time, the citizen journalism and social media, they separated, they took separate parts, uh, sp- they took separate paths. So now citizen journalists, they have other tools uh, to do what they do. And I think it is still a thing, citizen journalism is still a thing in, in many places of the world that where free media do not exist, where the government restrict access to information where they imprison journalists and persecute uh uh you know free speech and dissidents. And um so yeah occupied Crimea is one of them. Occupied territories of Ukraine since the Russian Full Scale invasion isn't another example.
0: Mm, there are a lot of yeah powers and positive things about citizen journalism in that way as well. Yeah. Um it shouldn't just be particular voices that are allowed to talk to everyone. Uh speaking of Ukraine um One of the biggest geopolitical events in recent history has been Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Russia, as I'm sure everyone listening knows, has a a long history of propaganda and disinformation campaigns in the modern era dating back to the state political directorate, which was a precursor to the KGB. Could you tell us a bit about the use of disinformation in the current political climate, in particular around the invasion of Ukraine?
2: Yeah, well, as you correctly say that active measures uh, were used by the USSR as a part of the uh, you know cold front play a cold war playbook against the west so information warfare uh, so called hybrid warfare is a part of uh, you know Russia's foreign policy basically Russia uses this information as a um, state funded tool to uh, achieve its foreign policy goals and also to achieve its military goals um, just before the Russian full-scale invasion of Ukraine, I've been working on the information research project with a company called Mythos Labs. And we analyzed uh, narratives about Ukraine on Twitter using a combination of artificial intelligence and human intelligence. And we established a correlation between a spike in a number of tweets uh, spreading um, disinformation about Ukraine and the Russian military movements on the Ukrainian border. So Russian military activity on the Ukrainian border first in 2021, in spring of 2021, and then the actual invasion in February, 2022, were preceded by a spike of activity uh, on social media, you know, malign actors, innocent, suspicious accounts, spreading disinformation about Ukraine. So this too, uh, for Russia... um, Conventional warfare and so-called hybrid warfare, the informational warfare, they go hand in hand. And Ukraine is just the most recent and most obvious example. Um although I think um that for many in um beyond you know this region, Eastern Europe, beyond Ukraine, uh, or the Baltic states or Poland, uh, it was it was something new it was news this was not something entirely expected so people tended to believe that disinformation is something doesn't really affect our lives it is not something that you know has a direct impact on our lives while i think ukrainians at least since 2014 they have experienced the opposite that disinformation can literally kill because first on russian tv they were you know the presenters of the tv shows they were talking about the need to you know, wipe Ukraine out of the map or execute Ukrainians because they are Nazis. So they've been talking about that since 2014 on Russian television. And then they actually started implementing it in real life, uh, since 2022. Um, so disinformation uh, can kill people who are engaged in spreading uh, disinformation, propaganda uh, in many cases can be treated as war criminals and should be taken uh, to account because they incite hatred. They can incite genocide. Um, that's what's happening in, in Ukraine, but also in the West. you know, So Russians are not just targeting audiences in Ukraine. They're not just targeting audiences in, in Russia. They're also targeting audiences in the West and also beyond in the countries of the so-called global South. Um, the intent there is different, the intent obviously is not as much to convince people to support Russia or what Russia is doing in Ukraine, but very often the intention in the West is to undermine support to to Ukraine and in other countries is to, um, but also in the West, but maybe more so in the global South, to kind of... Um, question, you know, what is actually happening in Ukraine to kind of get this message across that we will never know the truth, that maybe, you know, the Butcher massacre never happened, that maybe Ukrainians are killing themselves, that maybe, uh, uh, you know, this is actually um, the war that not Ukrainians are fighting, not Ukrainians are resisting, but Ukrainians are just pawns in this proxy war between the West and Russia. So there are different uh, kind of, different tactics and different uh, tools that Russia uses, uh, disinformation. Uh, It targets it to very specific audiences. Also, very often the narratives are very uh, hyperlocal, so they would would be different depending on the public um, that they are aimed for. Uh, Even within the same country, they could be different depending on I don't know in the U.S whether they want to target the Democrat uh uh, uh voters or the Republican voters the, the, the you know the messages would be different and and very often yeah this uh, narratives they play in local grievances so they would um in some countries that accepted large number of Ukrainian refugees for example they, they would you know try to foment this uh um kind of feeling of fatigue and uh, dissatisfaction with Ukrainian refugees they would try to plant a narrative that you know accepting and um, helping Ukrainian refugees draws away the resources from the local population so it would very much look at the context in in you know in, in different countries and try to play on it and and the goal would be not as much to convince people to believe in something but to make them, question everything, to make them not believe in anything, to make them disillusioned, especially in in democracies, disillusioned with democracy itself, with the free speech itself and kind of, and in this way also to promote the civic inaction and the civic kind of disengagement of the population so that people say, well, it's so complicated. We will never know the truth. So, I shouldn't be doing anything. I'm not taking sides in it. I'm not supporting either of the sides. So, I will just disengage. I will just like care about my own small things in my life, but I, w- I will not participate in any, uh, you know, civic activity. I will not be um, active in my local community. I will not engage in, in with the government so th- that's very often the goal and I think Russia really succeeded the Russian government really succeeded in doing so with the local population inside Russia which seems to be very disenfranchised and very disillusioned very cynical, very disengaged in any in, from any form of civic participation
1: Yeah I definitely think that that kind of um, that fatigue and that uh, you know sense that nothing you do really matters is definitely plaguing pretty much every major democracy in the world. You just have to look at the voter turnout figures and it's shockingly poor. Um, especially in the UK for anything to do, well back when we were in the EU, EU election turnouts were woefully small. And um, I think Scotland's probably a little bit more politically engaged than some, but that's only because we've had a recent history of lots of political turmoil, albeit you know peaceful political turmoil.
2: I think if people in, in democratic countries were more aware that there is actually a campaign going on on behalf of authoritarian regimes, the information influence campaign, to make them disengaged, to actually encourage this type of thinking, if they were more aware of this, maybe they would be you know, more active kind of treating it as an issue, as a challenge, as a threat, I think is a first step to to act in this direction. I think this kind of wishful thinking that well this is something really theoretical you know disinformation information influence malign influence campaigns it doesn't concern us it does not concern me as an individual this is this is a mindset that should change that should, there should be more awareness that actually it can impact everyone's life and i'm saying that because um well Obviously I'm a Ukrainian, I experienced disinformation. you know, I'm a target of this information on my social media and as a Ukrainian, as a part of this group, I'm a target also of a lot of hate speech and genocidal rhetoric, uh, but I experienced it as a journalist also when I started to cover a story um, back in 2007 of a, a Ukrainian soldier who was um, prosecuted for murder in Italy. Uh, murder of an Italian photographer who was killed in Ukraine in 2014 on a territory which was contested between uh, Ukrainian forces and Russian proxy forces. So that person was prosecuted and accused of deliberate murder of of this Italian uh, photo reporter based on circumstantial evidence and as a part of the evidence where a lot of you know open source um articles and some of them were coming from websites such as RT or Russian Spring so Italian prosecution thought that they can trust these sources and that was already like a big kind of red flag for me because i was like how can anyone trust RT as a legitimate uh, media outlet but many people Still do many people in the world still do. While in in Europe, there is awareness and there have been sanctions and RT has been taken down from social media, from uh, uh, you know TV networks, from satellite. Uh, but it's not the case in in Latin America. It's not the case in in Africa. It's not the case in in Asia. It's not the case even in Serbia, in Europe, where it is expanding. So, long story short. You know, that story of a Ukrainian soldier that I covered for four years, and that eventually ended uh, with his uh, complete um, exoneration, yeah. Uh, So he was sentenced in the first grade for murder, he was was found guilty, he was sentenced to 24 years in prison. And then there was an outcry, there was a lot of coverage because the first trial didn't get a lot of coverage in the press. And then there was much more coverage of the appeals and the Cassation, the Supreme Court uh, trials. Um, And more details uh, were shared, like, and and I I uh, also as an investigative journalist with a group of my colleagues, so we talked a lot about this case and we added, I think, to this kind of debate and trying to attract the attention to this case. Um, So he was uh, eventually exonerated of all charges, but even the fact that such a trial had taken place uh, in a EU member state, in a country, which is a democracy, which has a rule of law, uh, New York times wrote an article about this case. So this was something that was noticed and, and kind of the tone of the article was like, how is it possible that disinformation and penetrates even the courtrooms? How is it possible that uh, a democratic country, an a EU member, um, the, the legisla- le- legislative, branch in a, in a country that is an a EU member can take uh, RT as a legitimate source, and you know, the, the, uh, an article from RT as uh, a piece of evidence in court. How how is that even possible? And for me, it's it's just an illustration that there is not enough awareness that a lot of people still think it's not an issue, and that you know, Russian state-controlled media are just like just another point of view, or just like you know, the, the U.S. or any other media in a democratic country, which is completely not the case.
1: So one thing I've always been really curious about because I studied uh, politics and sociology then I did a, a masters in PR I've always been really curious about where to draw the line be- uh, between disinformation misinformation and propaganda uh, I'm thinking in particular um of the kind of state of political discourse we have right now especially in countries like the US and the UK where you have you know very prominent people like Tucker Carlson who states unequivocally on television that the US election was stolen but then months later we find out from all his leak text messages that he never believed that at all. So that would be disinformation in its purest form, because its intent was to maliciously misinform. But the way that he pushes his opinions forward, it's always in that quote unquote, I'm just asking questions. Uh, Discourse—the thing that's always a get-out-jail-free card—you can say anything you want as long as you say, "I'm just asking," you know.
0: There's never just asking you, a question. No,
1: you're never just asking a question. So, so that means you could argue that it's misinformation. You know, if he's just asking these questions that are not deliberately meant to mislead, it's just you know ignorance. But then it's funny that they always follow these like really highly partisan talking points. And they are designed to sway opinion, which feels a lot more like propaganda. So I guess I'm wondering how do we categorize and tackle um, disinformation in a world when disinformation, misinformation and propaganda are so like closely entwined?
2: Yeah, well, it's a very difficult question and I have no answer. I think that very often it's, it's even really difficult to draw a line between the three. As you said, you know, that disinformation, uh, something that wasn't misinformation initially, which means there was no intent to uh, misinform people, to feed them incorrect false information, can be then used and abused by actors who intentionally want to feed people false information. So they can just, you know, use uh, a post by someone who with no intention misinformed their audience about something, but that th- that can be then shared and amplified by someone who has the intention to misinform. And if we're talking about propaganda, especially by state actors, that's then again, you know, they're using all the available tools. And very often, uh, they're happy. Again, of course, I'm keeping in mind Russia when I'm talking about that. They're very happy when there are um, people in in other countries who would maybe non intentionally but they would spread uh, messages and information and ask questions that are really favorable and uh, to, to to you know to the Kremlin that somehow echo uh, russian talking points and echo russian narratives because that would serve then uh, for russian propaganda as a way to legitimize their narrative in the eyes of their own population because then on the russian state controlled media you would see ar- an article which says look This uh, journalist in Germany is writing about this and that. So that means that the German public, they support Russia. They are, you know, they, they believe what we are saying. So they are on our side. Even if that person in Germany is some like marginal blogger who does not have an audience, but it's not, it is enough that this person is a foreigner and that foreigner is very often it would start from questioning the actions of their own government or criticize the, you know, the West, the EU, the US, whatever, NATO, uh, you name it. But then it would be twisted and manipulated uh, by Russian media, by Russian propaganda media to, you know, to feed it to their own audience and to say, look, these people support us. They are on our side because they are asking this question. So it, it's very difficult to draw a line. Um, between misinformation, disinformation and propaganda these days, I think it's, it's even impossible, uh, to draw the line. What we can do is to be aware of how these actors operate, because of course, I mean, of course, misinformation can be harmful, but this is something that, you know, we can do little about, like, I think we've all done it. We've all shared something which we thought was true, and then it turned out that it was false, but we didn't have any intention to do harm or to, you know, um, mislead people. So you can do little with misinformation, but you can do more with disinformation. You can, you know, raise awareness. You can speak about those actors who are engaging in this intentional disinformation campaigns. You can take action to counter these actors um you can yeah talk to the public raise their um media literacy and 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 of course if we are talking about journalism and journalists um of course journalists need to be aware of how uh, disinformation operates it is not freedom of speech when two opinions one of which is based in fact and the the other one isn't are equalized that uh, put on the same footing which often happens in journalism because yeah right we we care about freedom of speech we want to give uh, space to different opinions but then we should also be careful are to are these opinions based in fact are the the sides that we are platforming do they have um arguments to support their opinion because not all opinions are equal and if we do not care about this, whether they have arguments to support their opinion, then we might be also unintentionally spreading uh, disinformation. We, you know, we might be facilitating uh, the access to people who have an intention to, to spread this information by giving them the platform, by giving them the floor, by giving them the ability to reach wider audience than they would otherwise.
0: Mm, especially if um, you might have a debate between two people one of which has a lot of evidence for their point of view but the other is perhaps more charismatic but doesn't have evidence and then they could just sway the opinion through their charisma
2: absolutely via emotions so yeah it's like one of the first rules also when talking to people like how to uh kind of distinguish disinformation just like stop and think before you want you want to share something that evokes really strong emotions in you. Just like stop and think and like take a break and think like, who is the source? What could be the intention? can I verify it? Can I find corroboration of this information in other sources? Because yeah, the emotions, people are easy to manipulate uh, because of the emotions. And very often the disinformation actors, they would use that. I
1: think media literacy that you mentioned is going to be so 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 important it's mean, it's already important it's been important for decades but i think it's going to become critical now that we teach young people how to properly analyze information that they receive from any from any source um it's not not that we should foster like a sense of distrust in them i'm not saying you shouldn't trust anything but at the same time maybe they shouldn't you know maybe we should critically analyze every single thing that we that we encounter, media literacy is going to be absolutely critical.
2: In Finland, for example, they are doing it from primary school, and Finland is one of like, the best countries in terms of you know media literacy in its population, critical thinking, ability to distinguish false information. It's not, of course, like it's not a silver bullet. It does not guarantee that there won't be people who will not you know buy it, who will not be disinformed, But still, like it helps. I think it it helps, so we should all learn from things.
1: I think the other thing you mentioned about not all opinions are equal—that's really important as well. I think that's something we've all lost sight of. Social media has been this incredible uh, kind of democratizing force, where a lot of people, a lot of regular people, have found that their voices are being amplified to hundreds of thousands or millions of people with their posts. You know, we have this influencer culture, but that doesn't mean that their opinion is equal to somebody who has expert knowledge of a subject. So you wouldn't put a NASA scientist on the same, I don't know, panel as a flat earther, because one of them is based in science and you know experimental research, and the other one isn't. So I think we've kind of, as a sort of Western culture, I think we've kind of adopted this idea that all opinions are equal and everybody, everybody should have a voice and everyone should have a the right to you know free speech and to say what they want, but that doesn't mean that we should listen to everybody you know, I've got lots of opinions and most of them are complete garbage and I should not be listened to in any regard, but I should be allowed to, you know, to voice them. It's why I've got, like, 17 Twitter followers and it's going down by the day.
2: Unless, you know, it's it's not harming anyone and you're posting it in some, like, your private space and there is no, not, there is, like, around you, there is no someone who actually wants to Kind of exploit and abuse you to advance their agenda. Then it's fine. But um, I monitor not just Ukrainian information space, but I also monitor Italian information space. and speak Italian language. And since the start of Russian full scale invasion, what happened very often on Italian talk shows, especially so not you know news or uh, political like analysis programs, but mostly like talk shows that cover all sorts of topics, not just politics, not just like international events. Um, they would often have exactly, you know, wh- what he said. They would have a, a person who has an expert knowledge in the region, like Ukraine, Russia, in you know, conflict studies. And then they would have someone would have a blogger, uh, who just has strong opinions a- and these people will be given equal, uh, screen time. And then the audience will be asked to rate, you know, whose opinion they liked more. So it's completely insane. I mean. It's- in the current media also environment, when the media are in crisis, media don't have money anymore. You know, traditional mainstream media are, uh, their advertising revenues are falling. They are really struggling to compete with, with social media, with, you know, the influencers and bloggers, they, they don't have uh, resources that they used to have. They, very often it's a struggle of who is the loudest, who does the most clickbait. Uh, if it's you know online media or if it's TV, who just like attracts the audience by making you know the coverage as emotional as possible, so that just like people are hooked on this needle of emotion. So I somewhere still you know of course DK has its problems and you know as you mentioned earlier, but I still think that in a way. From the pay perspective, you're not looking at the media environment in other countries, even in continental Europe, it might still still seem that, you know, things are not that bad. But <laughs> if you take a closer look on what's happening like in, in countries that have where media are in a worse situation, they, where they have less resources, where there is not this also strong kind of public oversight over public broadcasters, um and where private media are in hands of very rich people who don't really care about the quality of journalism and fact-checking, but they care about revenues, they care about uh, shares and ratings and how many people watch their their content, Um, the situation is very, very different.
1: I think the UK is definitely very lucky that we've got some exceptionally high-quality media outlets that are still operating. I mean, they're struggling, but they're getting by uh i do think we've got one of the worst tabloid press cultures in the world um i mean the tabloid press has like literally killed people here um but that's a niche thing it's hard to even see that as being part of the news culture It's that's more i don't know entertainment i guess for lack of a better word and i really feel like i'm lacking a better word there because you mm-hmm. can't swear on the podcast i need to ask my bosses if i can swear on this Yes, I'm gonna hazard a guess and say no. It
0: might make it more entertaining and then more people would listen to it. But I think entertainment is the right word to use because it's actually what we've been speaking about, right? It's like uh entertainment uh, would draw more people and if it, even if it's not entertainment in a in a joyful way, if it's entertainment in a way that like it really grabs your mind because it elicits strong emotions in you so.
2: Nothing against entertainment, but, you know, (laughs) very often, like it's just done for the sake of entertainment. And if the topics are more complex than just like a wedding party of a celebrity, and there is not a disinfect check-in, then it can get really nasty. If
0: only the, the harsh truth could be more entertaining, but sometimes they just don't combine entertainment and harsh truth. Speaking of uh, media literacy and the difficulty of um, personally pulling apart what you see to know what to believe or not, um, generative AI is changing the nature of discourse and content online at a staggering rate. Uh, You've got almost photorealistic images being shared and absorbed uncritically, deep faked audio and video that's very realistic, and all of which is happening at a really fast pace. It's like that old idiom a lie is halfway around the world while the truth is getting its boots on. We've had instantaneous communication for a while now and rapid news cycles for even longer, but now we can have false or misleading stories with matching audio and video content spread across vast networks in a heartbeat. How do you think AI is going to affect politics in the future and how might we harness it for good? You can answer those two parts separately if you like because both are very big questions.
2: (laughs) Well, uh, definitely... um... The AI is facilitating uh, the work of uh, disinformation actors largely. So uh, I'm not sure that, you know, Russians will have to fund a troll farm in somewhere near St. Petersburg and to continue paying salaries to trolls, uh, to people who are, who are sitting there, you know, writing the same comments on social media and, you know, tweeting from. Um, the soap puppet accounts to to spread certain narratives anymore because the AI can do it. Uh, More and more, these processes become automated, they become cheaper, they become easier, and that really facilitates uh, the life of uh, those malign actors that are treating this information just as, you know, as a tool, um, as as a part of the system of how they operate. The example of Russian full-scale invasion of Ukraine, Russia, for example, they've produced deep fake videos with President Zelensky, uh, who in that video, that fake video was uh, announcing Ukraine's surrender, who was telling the soldiers to, you know, return to their positions, to lay down their weapons. It emerged very early in the war and it was completely, you know, had very little credibility, it looked like. It was obvious that this was a fake also because of how Ukrainians resisted, how Ukrainian president uh, took this very firm position uh, that Ukraine will be fighting, that he's not leaving the country, that he's staying. He's asking weapons, not to write. he famously said, um, but they tried, like Russians tried and they keep trying and I'm sure they will keep trying. They will keep trying to use an AI uh, for, you know, what their goals and, um, what can we do? Like what can people who are optimistic or want to be optimistic about the AI do? I think, well, we should look at the opportunities, how to make AI work for good. And uh, I've mentioned already a project that I worked on where the AI was helpful to identify the networks of um, inauthentic suspicious accounts on Twitter. So the. And an algorithm was helping us with that. I know that a lot of my colleagues who also do disinformation research, they rely on AI to analyze big sets of data, big sets of narratives, messages, a lot of social media posts. So it can be helpful. It can be useful. I think we are now at this crossroads uh, in a way, uh, at this junction, and very soon it will become clear whether AI is a force for good when it comes to disinformation or whether AI is a force for bad actors, so whether we can develop mechanisms and also maybe some regulation um, to use AI as a tool to counter disinformation Mm -hmm. or um, with our lack of action, we will allow um, bad actors to use AI for their own purposes.
0: Mm. It's a race against the the AIs for doing one thing on one side and another thing on the other side. Like the the deepfakes getting better and better, generative, generative AIs getting better and better. And on the other side, the AIs designed to detect uh, AI-generated <laughs> images and videos and audio um, are getting better and better as well. So it's just nice, like both of them are in a race. Yeah,
2: yeah. And, and, and you know, now AI... I, yeah it is discussed that the ai would be used to uh, help identify uh, images generated by ai so it's like you know. mm-hmm.
0: yeah it was um something that uh i was thinking about a lot with this uh, how to analyze images um when i was reading about this topic because scrolling through examples of dis- disinformation used the images come up a lot images put in incorrect contexts, uh, videos generated as well. But not only that, but things that are actually genuine um, that people want to say are fake because they it goes against what they want to be put out. So it's like not only would we uh, generate images and video that are fake to get across a particular piece of information we would also use the disinformation of something being fake to get across what we want to show um, so then it all comes down to like can we as individuals trying to find out what the truth is analyze an image or a video and come to a conclusion whether it's fake or not um, and there are lots of tools that people can use um, i think even today i was looking at there's a like a google google chrome extension you can mm-hmm, use yeah. there's different software you can use to do image analysis um, and If you're bombarded with loads of these, then you would probably need an AI to automate doing all of that. Um, But until then, uh, I wonder if not only media literacy is something we need to be trained in, but also just the use of tools for individuals to be able to find out if an image is real or not.
1: I mean, we've spoken about this before, but it's the erosion of confidence in what the truth is that's a real problem with AI. You know, it's the kind of mundane things. Like the other day I listened to Uh, audio Joe Biden rapping forgot about Dre and I was like relatively sure that that didn't happen uh, because his flow was immaculate and I just don't think that Joe Biden has like the wherewithal to do that so I knew that that was fake but if somebody had faked an audio Joe Biden I don't know saying something iffy about abortion or talking about trains or something I would absolutely just believe that that was true because it's staggeringly close to real life Mm. Uh, or you know to being really accurate
0: the subtle things can be more effective
1: yeah it's it's not going to be you know pictures of trump tearing his top off and having a six-pack and like having a gun in both hands and storming the Capitol. it's going to be very 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 subtle things
2: the pope jacket the pope jacket yeah i think we are we are going to see a lot of the examples of uh, ai use in the upcoming election campaign in the us so this should be probably the first election when uh, all sides will use AI to manipulate the the voters and yeah uh, you know I feel uneasy about it I do know about you
1: it's one of those things it's hard to condemn the use of AI in situations where I don't like it and then completely accept it in situations where I do you know I think that's
0: fine it's a tool and tools can be used in bad ways and good ways you can use a knife to cut an onion or can use it to cut a person like
1: yeah but what i meant was we don't condemn knives, you know
0: and so it could be the same with some forms of ai yeah depends what you use it for i suppose <laughs> you could say that um the way the ai has been built is makes it a poor tool
2: mm-hmm.
1: well that's like something that the the data lab is doing a lot of work in Is and it's Scotland's uh, AI strategy is to cr- develop an AI culture that is trustworthy, ethical, and uh, inclusive. Because if you do, if you build your AIs on inferior data that is only generated by I don't know a small percentage of the population, you're going to end up with a bad AI. You know that's always going to be the case. So again, can you imagine if there was an AI that was trained to disinformation but all you did was train it on say Daily Mail articles or Russia Today articles or other kind of right-wing news outlets you get a wildly skewed idea of what disinformation is. Similarly if you only did it in left-wing publications it would be wildly skewed. That's why the you know the kind of transparency and the ethics behind AI development is so so vital.
0: As a journalist, do you, have you or anyone you work with use any kind of like um, digital forensics to work out whether the things that you're using as evidence um, have a good source to them?
2: Yeah, I'm using uh, OSINT tools in my work to verify images, to geolocate and um, yeah, to find data in uh, in open sources. So. I found that the skills really make me as a journalist more competent. Um, there is still a lot to learn, um, but I feel like journalists, they, they have to keep up with technology. They have to use, um, at least, you know, be familiar with, they might not use them like on their daily work, like every day, but at least like be familiar with these tools, It's it's really helpful. So AI is something that I'm just like starting to use. So I'm not a proficient user yet. Um, Yeah, but I believe that the media community cannot just like, you know, ignore um, the risks and opportunities, the challenges and opportunities that AI creates. And I really like to kind of walk in these two shoes in a way to you know, continue doing journalism, but also um, looking into disinformation and how to counter it and also how, what's the role of the AI in it.
1: I noticed in your bio that you said you've been conducting research into using humor to combat disinformation. Could you tell us a little bit about how that works?
2: Yeah. Um, So this was a project for uh, the Reuters Institute uh, for the Study of Journalism in Oxford. And I looked at how Ukraine in particular, Ukrainian actors, both state actors, but also the media and just like social media users, they used humor and memes to, um, communicate strategically about Ukraine's resistance and Ukraine's, uh, you know, um, fight against Russian invasion, uh, but also to combat Russian disinformation. You probably remember the the meme with uh, a snake island bodyguard who told the Russian warship to go and, well, get lost, if we're (laughs) not using swear words on this podcast. Apparently not. (laughs) (laughs) So that became a meme. That was a true story that has been converted into a meme. Then the postal stamps were printed with it, envelopes, a lot of magnets, a lot of souvenirs. So, um... And this, this was something that really, I think, turned the tide of uh how the war was covered in the media and in and, and on social media by, you know, um people from all over the world. Because I think this was like this very symbolic act of resistance, of defiance, and of also using humor and irony in a very tragic situation of you know, your country being under attack, loss of life, bombardments, missile attacks. Uh, but It turned out that even in this situation, you can still use humor and it can be a useful tool to not just to cope with, you know, the tragedy, not just to cope with the loss, with destruction, with grief. Um, but also it can be a useful tool to communicate Ukraine's cause to, uh, Build relationship with people from other countries using the same cultural codes, like references to uh, popular movies like Star Wars or others, or you know, so in this way, kind of mobilizing support for Ukraine, connecting with uh, public, especially in the Western countries, because of this shared kind of cultural references, very often based in humor, like Simpsons or you know the. Uh, Russia, USSR, uh, rotating table, the UN, uh, the UN desk in in one of the Simpsons episodes. So all these like very, very famous, familiar memes that could make this connection and kind of so that Ukrainians were perceived as a part of us, a part of this wider democratic world. You know, they are fighting our fight; their cause is our cause, so we should support them. So I think Ukrainians were really smart in using humor. To connect with not just like on the government level, uh, with the governments, but also at the, the people to people, person to person level, with with just you know, members of public in, in other countries. Um, um, humor was also a, a good tool to combat disinformation because, um, when you know, Russian official accounts on social media would post something like accuse Ukrainians of being Nazis or whatever any any sort of the crazy narrative that they produced um there would be Ukrainian either official accounts uh on social media or just Ukrainians Ukrainian users who would just like take that uh Russian tweet or whatever it was and just like ridicule and mock and Create kind of a counter narrative and just like expose the absurdity of it. So very often, a, um, a good strategy to approach disinformation and to counter disinformation, and not it's not just to debunk it. It's not enough to debunk it. It's, it's been confirmed by many studies that only a fraction of people who saw a fake new uh, fake news they would read the debunking. So it will stick with them that like something they read first. So maybe ten percent of people who read the fake news, they will read the debunking. And in this sense, like um, not just doing a debunking, not just exposing the fake news, but ridiculing the fake news, exposing the absurdity of a narrative uh, is something that could work because it could help to reach wider audience. It could help to reach people who are not necessarily interested in global uh, news in, you know, in war in Ukraine, in, in whatever happens outside of their bubble. But they, they can can relate to meme. They can relate to a good joke. They can relate to irony. They can relate to sarcasm. And then you know, and that can be that connection. Then, will somehow, kind of, um, allow them to sympathize with Ukrainians, Ukrainians more. more. So yeah,
1: hmm. it's incredible that we might be on the cusp of like the war that memes won. You know, that's a really, really fascinating world we live in. Terrifying but fascinating Mm. i'm glad the simpsons memes are still being used you know and it's uh that bit you mentioned with like the ussr like sorry the russia thing turning into ussr i saw that so much uh at the beginning of the invasion it was my twitch feed was full of it mostly because it's like mostly simpsons fans (laughs) that uh, are on there um same with the lenin uh, thing when he's embalmed and he like punches through his glass coffin and says must destroy capitalism that's another great I, I use that quite often when i have to go into work early but you know that was just me complaining um
0: uh, i really like that we can share like a humor of absurdity across yeah i mean it's people. a sort of it's
1: like a sort of gallows humor you know there's loads of examples of that of uh like in world war ii like there's lots of like really really bleak dry british humor and graffiti and stuff that um people were yeah. like, mocking like you said the the narratives that you know the nazis were trying to push um because you're right i think it's kind of like it's the same with uh horror films you know the the line between horror and comedy is so so fine it's the same in kind of real life narratives you know you can take something absolutely horrific and ridicule it in a way that takes away all of its power, you know, and it's a really, really important tool.
0: And in a way it's coming back to the entertainment thing again. It's like, it's something that you can connect with um, that's like engaging to your mind, perhaps more than the debunking article for the the, the disinformation um, because mm-hmm. it it just draws you because it's entertaining, it's
2: funny. And yeah.
1: What are people gonna retweet, you know, a dry article debunking some technical points or a Simpsons what? meme?
2: Yeah, absolutely, and you know, well, Ukraine has been like really good with uh, with using humor. So there is this uh, official Twitter account of Ukraine um, that has been active for I don't know at least five years, and they've produced some like really memorable memes, and they they have really beaten Russia on it. So th- this is something that started before the full scale invasion. There was already this kind of. I wouldn't call it that tradition, but there were people who who knew that this was the way, and who you know who kind of were able to produce humorous content and who were able to persuade also the the government that this is you know something that they should do because this is obviously a state affiliated official account, but also because Ukraine is a democracy because the civil society is so strong. It was not a centralized effort because it can never be funny if it's only coming from the government, like the government can't produce funny things. You probably remember in the US, they tried to counter, uh, uh, Russian disinformation and they, they spent like huge amount of money on creating a meme with a bear, which was like completely ridiculous, not funny at all. It was like terrible. So the thing is that in Ukraine, these people who even like if, if they were running this Kind of government state account of Ukraine, official account of Ukraine. um, They were not like, not all of them were working in the government. So like they were kind of (laughs) helping out, but they were not like public, public officials. So they they're not at least they are, and they are also the new generation. So and and then because uh, there is such a strong, powerful civil society, and and many like. active citizens so just like a lot of people they, they started to post memes to embed in Ukraine we even say that if there is something terrible happening like uh, there will be in the first like in in the first two hours will, ukrainians will produce like 10 100 memes already like to to react to any event and that that helps uh, people to cope and to survive also because yeah, Ukrainian history, unfortunately, has not been a very light past. So, yeah, people had to cope somehow. People had to survive on gallows who really helped. And, and, and it's also a way to connect with people in the Ukraine, I think. Yeah, yeah we both appreciate this kind of humor.
1: It has to be organic. Like you said, like when the US tried to do it, when the government tried to like commission a meme, it's just one of the <laughs> worst things you're ever going to see. But the way that they've kind of co-opted the dark brandon thing has been really interesting so i don't know if you
0: i don't know dark brandon so
1: basically at republican rallies they used to chant f joe biden Uh, but then a reporter misheard that and said oh they seem to be chanting let's go brandon so the right wing (laughs) media started using let's go brandon as like a proxy for f joe biden Uh. but that was fine Uh, but then whenever joe biden got like a political win they would start describing that as dark Brandon. And uh, whenever he was just uh, straight to the point, uh, they would say, right, oh, is dark Brandon's come out. So now they're selling t-shirts of like Joe Biden with like laser eyes uh, saying like dark Brandon and like some of his like to the point tweets and stuff. It's just been a wild journey over the last yeah. couple of years of people op- uh, co-opting and stealing and reappropriating memes to suit their own narrative. But right now it's, it feels like the White House is winning, but who knows what's going what's going to be in a couple of weeks?
0: and you kind of have to know the whole story of the meme to understand what's oh, it's going like a, on
1: a seventh it's like a seventh <laughs> tier meme it's ridiculous yeah. it's oh God, we live in a yeah. truly truly a hellscape
2: <laughs> it, it has to be organic, and that's why like Russians, when they try to counter you know and produce their own memes, they fail because they they, they can't produce funny piece of content, like it's, it's coming from top down. And also it's so like, it's so high in propaganda. It's so like inflated, it's so artificial and it's really unclear what they are fighting for, you know, for Ukraine, it's really clear. So that gives people like an additional boost in their creativity, because there is this feeling of like, we are fighting for our freedom and like being able to express ourselves freely and use humor is another manifestation of it.
1: I mean humor should always punch up rather than down as soon as humor is punching down it's not funny well with that said I think it might be time for some wild speculation
0: in each episode of the last question we ask our guests to look beyond the scope of their research and speculate wildly about the future Olga what do you think the impact of AI will be on the next US and UK general elections
2: yeah, I think we'll see a lot of deep fake videos. We'll see a lot of fake uh, images. We'll see, um, maybe some, uh, attempt to, um, uh, hack official websites and maybe also some media, some media websites to do this. pretend it's a legitimate media outlet, but in fact it's, it's not a real one. hmm so yeah i think that's what we can expect but hopefully there is an awareness also of what is coming and there are there are preparations to counter it and hopefully the ai can also be used to um increase transparency and to you know go after malicious ai so the good ai goes after the bad ai
1: We'd like to thank Olga Tokoviuk for joining us today for that fascinating exploration of disinformation. Uh, you can see Olga in person at the 2023 edition of Data Summit, the Data Lab's flagship conference right in the middle of Data Fest. This year's Data Summit is back at the EICC in Edinburgh on the 2nd and 3rd of November 2023. And you, dear listener, can get an exclusive 25% off in-person and live stream tickets with the code ds 23 T-L-Q. that's all caps. So just head over to datafest.global for tickets and information where you can see all of the cool keynotes and panels we're going to have this year. In last week's episode, we spoke to Father Paolo Benanti, who is the AI advisor to Pope Francis and the Vatican. And the question that we asked our listeners at the end of the episode was, what effect is AI going to have on faith in the future? So we reached out to some religious scholars and leaders uh, from around the world. And uh, over the next couple of episodes, we will explore some of the answers that they gave us. This week, we're going to hear from Dr. Sahasranamam uh, for a Hindu perspective on AI and the future of faith. So this is what he sent to us. Lily, do you want to kick it off?
0: A key concept of the Hindu faith is Purushata, or the four aims of human life, which are Dharma, righteousness, moral values, Artha, prosperity, economic values, Karma, pleasure, psychological values, and Moksha, spiritual values, self-actualization. In the next 50 to 100 years, AI will become a co-pilot for all human endeavors, including decision-making. For maintaining righteousness or dharma in the world, the algorithm and LLMs, large language models, must be trained on data that is truthful and morally right.
1: He continued, The advancement in AI will naturally accelerate humanity's attainment of ARTA, economic prosperity as we are entering a world of abundance with multiple technological convergences. I believe we will also see forms of universal basic income become a norm globally, which will free up a lot of time, which is now spent on day jobs, for humanity to take up other pursuits. This would, in the first instance, be more time spent on pleasure or karma activities, Once individuals exhaust themselves with pleasure and material pursuits, they will begin engaging more in pursuits of meditation and spirituality, which will give them calm and peace." So that's a really, really interesting perspective on the future of uh, faith and AI uh, from a a Hindu perspective, which isn't something you see very often in like common sci-fi tropes or Even Um, in, like, big discussions about AI.
0: It could be in um, sci-fi in other languages, but just not once they've been translated to English. Yeah,
1: I guess I I meant just uh, Western Mm -hmm. sci-fi. Although right now I'm reading uh, a book called Lord of Light, um, where human colonists go to a distant world and take on the role of gods based on the Hindu Parthenon.
0: Oh, wow, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, it's really, really interesting.
1: It's quite dense. It's not, you know... It's not the easiest read in the world. Uh it's taken a while to get to a point, but it's good, you know. George R. R. Martin said it's one of the five best sci-fi novels ever written.
0: Oh wow. Mm. And you're probably learning a lot.
1: I um haven't learned the author's name. (laughs) I'm (laughs) learning other things. Mm. So uh yep, if uh you want to hear your thoughts read out on the podcast, please do send them to datafest at thedatalab.com and just answer any of the questions that we ask at the end of the episodes. And there'll be one coming up for this episode in just a second.
0: And here we are, the last question. This is where we pose our listeners a question. And in a future episode, we'll discuss some of the most interesting answers. Our question this week is, do we live in a post-truth society?
1: So that's it from us today. We'll be back next time with more insight, innovation and wild speculation. Feel free to drop us an email to say hello or suggest a topic or make corrections, wherever you like. Uh, the best email is datafest at thedatalab.com uh, or you can find us on twitter at Datalab scotland.
0: if you enjoyed the podcast please do leave us a review on your platform of choice it goes a long way and means a lot to us thanks for listening join us again next time for another episode of the last question
2: goodbye